Um, so the calendar just changed recently, and uh, when, when that happens, it, it's a time where we like to reflect on things that happened. Uh, perhaps there was a lot of dissatisfaction and frustrations with how the previous year went, and maybe want to ponder how we might make some changes or those re resolutions. Uh, maybe those resolutions will work this time, right? Um, but I don't know about you, but the more and more uh, I find that my feeble attempts to, to change things, they, they just don't work. And they only serve to remind me that I'm not really in control of much. Uh, for example, uh, a tiny microscopic organism thing finds its way over to me and it flies in my nose and, and guess what? I'm on the bench for two weeks or ten days or maybe five days now. Whatever it is, either way, uh, my life is interrupted for a certain length of time, or uh, my plans are, are put on, on hold, or maybe they're canceled, and there's not a thing that I can do to change it. In fact, any number of things might occur, and I am simply powerless to bend those things to my will. So given this reality, what can we do? We can be upset about it. We can do like my three-year-old, uh, and, and pout and complain about how I don't like it. And she likes to sit in the middle of the floor and just fold her arms. And if any of you know Lexi, you know how she is, right? Uh, or option two, we can seek the one who is in control of everything. As we, uh, we acknowledge, as we look forward to the new year, God is in charge of what happens in 2022. And knowing that, believing that, serves as a source of comfort when we are unsure or even anxious about what the new year might bring. So in our passage today, we're going to encounter a group of believers who are huddled together in prayer to God. The believers are facing opposition at this point. The powers that be are no friends of this new movement of people who follow a character named Jesus. Peter and John, one day, are minding their own business. And isn't it the case that these sorts of things happen when we're minding our own business, right? So they're minding their own business, they're on their way to the temple, and the two men encounter a lame beggar. The beggar predictably asks for money. Peter and John don't have any. But what they do have is far more valuable than money. Yes, and this is a spoiler alert, they heal the man, but I'm not talking about their ability to heal a lame beggar that's, that's the valuable thing that they have. It's not that. What they have is more valuable than all the silver and gold in the entire world, more than the power to, to snap their fingers and instantaneously heal any disease or deformity. What they have, that's something that's more valuable, is the gospel. So Peter will break it down. He says, Jesus, who was crucified, is alive. He conquered death, which is something nobody has ever been able to do. And it was in Jesus' name that the man was healed. But this beggar, if he only was healed of his infirmity, and he could run fast and jump high and dance like nobody's watching, it would all have been pointless. It would all have been completely pointless if the beggar never hears the name of Jesus. If he is never told that the salvation of his very soul is found in the name of Jesus and that there is no other name 
in all of creation, given among men by which he must be saved. So as you might imagine, this episode of, of the lame man being healed, uh, it caused quite a stir. A, a crowd soon gathered in front of the temple. Hey, wasn't that the guy who was, who was there begging every day? We, we saw him every day, right? That was him. Peter took the opportunity to let them know exactly what happened. Not just that this formerly lame beggar, who at this point is jumping up and down and shouting praises to God, uh, it's not that he was healed. Peter takes them back to Moses and the prophets and how they foretold of the coming of the Messiah. That same Messiah spoken about so long ago had actually appeared to them, but they rejected him. Not only that, they killed him on a cross. So this was Peter's evangelistic call to all who were gathered to see about the commotion caused by the healing. He says, repent and believe. If you're only interested about the healing, you've missed the point, just like you missed the Messiah in your very midst. And like I said before, the powers that be who were opposed to anything Jesus-related, they caught wind of this, and what Peter was preaching, and guess what they did? They had him arrested. They were thrown in prison overnight. But it was too late to stop. The scripture says that Peter's words had the effect that, that God intended, and 5,000 men believed the message. So they were quite frustrated. The priests, the elders, the scribes, they summon Peter and John the next day. And they enact their brilliant plan to end all of this Jesus talk. You want to know their brilliant plan? Tell them to stop. I don't know if they threw in a pretty please or, or what, probably not. Uh, so the two apostles, you, you might imagine, they scoff at the notion. You're telling us to listen to you instead of God? I don't think so, right? Christians, let's, let's make that our attitude, right? When we encounter opposition to our faith, we listen to God rather than men. So following this whole ordeal, the imprisonment, the release, uh, they, they return, Peter and John return to the believers, their group of believers, and then they go to the Lord in prayer. They pray for boldness, a prayer I would encourage each of us to pray. In our day and age, uh, the need for boldness is no less urgent. May God give us the courage to stand for Jesus no matter what the consequences we're not being thrown into prison for our faith, at least not yet, but what will you do if and when that day comes? So going back, the believers gathered on that day uh, address God in this prayer as Master. Other translations of the Bible have it as Sovereign Lord. The Greek word means absolute ruler, having absolute ownership and uncontrolled power. That is our God our master, and our sovereign Lord. When we pray to God, we are praying to the one who owns it all, who is in charge of everything, and who has no, no one and nothing above him. Listen to the way that A.W. Pink defines the concept of God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God may de be defined as the exercise of his supremacy, being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to no one, influenced by none, absolutely independent. 
God does as he pleases, only as he pleases. With this message that I'm I'm giving you guys today, uh, my heart's desire is that we may understand a little bit better what it, means to, what it means when we say that God is sovereign. And with that, let us turn to our main text in, in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to take a close look at how the believers prayed on that day as they petitioned our sovereign Lord. So in Acts chapter 4, we're going to start on verse 23. After they were released... They went to their own people, this is uh, Peter and John, and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assemble together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will have predestined to take place. Now, Lord, consider their hearts and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand for healing, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. So from this prayer, we are able to uh, discern a few things about the so sovereignty of God. Uh, the first of these being that God is sovereign over creation. It says in our text that when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. From the beginning of time itself, God was in charge. And he exerts his sovereignty in the beginning by bringing space, time, and matter into existence out of nothing. His power and sovereignty is such that he could speak to nothing and that nothing promptly responds and becomes something. And not just any something, but the exact something down to the molecular structure that God desires it to be. Let's turn to Genesis and read the familiar opening line of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the verse has been read by many of us very often. If you ever try to start one of those read the Bible in a year plans, that's, that's the first one, right? You've encountered it probably on day one of your reading plan, and if you've ever had to reboot your reading plan some, some point during the year, maybe a few weeks, few months, uh, you probably read it again. Uh, and if you open up a children's storybook Bible, uh, you're sure to see Genesis 1-1 quoted probably on the first page. So let's take a moment to ponder this verse, because we tend to neglect in our familiarity 
with it to, to really ponder it and, and understand what, what does it mean when, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the first phrase, in the beginning, implies chronology. A sequence events of events must have a starting point, and sequence events, that is the history of the universe, began with God's creative act. In the beginning tells us that time itself is the creation of God and is therefore subject to his rule. God is the God of eternity. He is not subject to time the way that we are. He exists apart from time because he was there, if you could think of it, before time came into being. It's mind-blowing, and it's difficult, if not impossible, to understand and fully appreciate. The next phrase says, God created the heavens, which speaks of what we would call outer space. It's the black stuff that holds the stars and the comets and the planets and whatever else is out there, right? The universe is incomprehensibly large. It's enormous. The best and brightest minds in the field of astronomy only know a fraction of a percent of its vast mystery. These are the things in the universe. There are things in this universe that human beings will never know, never understand, or even ever discover. Have you ever wondered why? I know I have. If you've ever wondered why God made the universe so gigantic, uh, kids will ask me, why did, why, you know, in children's church, why, why did God make it so big, right? We'll never even get to anywhere close to, to the end of it. Why is it so large? And I think God did it to make a point. It, it was to show us something. The universe is so large that we'll never understand it. We'll never understand everything there is to know about it. And God made that thing that's so large that we'll never understand everything there is to know about it. So if that's true, how much more vast and incomprehensible and exhaustible and awesome is the creator of that universe? So the answer is he's infinitely more. Finally, the, the last phrase of Genesis 1-1 tells us that God also created the earth, and that's our home. We don't have to travel out of our atmosphere to find wonders and mysteries that tell of our creator. Literally, it's in our own backyard. Despite what people might tell you, science will never catch up to that, right? Science can never red render God obsolete. In fact, the exact opposite is true. There will be a day when God renders science obsolete, so not only is God the creator, but he's also the sustainer. He is actively involved in keeping our universe intact by, and keeping the world spinning and keeping each of our hearts beating. If God were to blink for even a nanosecond, it would all go poof, gone. Every particle of reality is under the supervision of our sovereign Lord. As R.C. Sproul once said, there's not even so much as a single maverick molecule running around loose in our universe. Now there's this belief out there, and it's called deism. Deism says that God, or fill in the blank with your preferred uh, supreme being, created everything and has since left his creation alone. So he created it, and he just stepped back and let it go, right? Kind of wound it up, wound up the toy, and let, let it go. Um, that he doesn't intervene in any special way, he doesn't care that much about what happens. That's what deism says. But this is a far cry from the God we read about in Scripture. In Psalm 8, it says this, Lord, our God, 
How magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the, in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout all the earth. Yes, God is magnificent. He is our sovereign Lord. We turn to another psalm. Psalm 19, and it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. So when we observe the work of God in creation, we should be in awe, and we should give glory to God. But do we always do that? How often do we thank God and praise God for him just being creator, for the rising and the setting of the sun, for the sparkling stars in the sky? How often do we thank him for these things? We fail, but the heavens themselves declare and the rocks cry out. Let all of creation glorify the name of our sovereign Lord. We turn to another passage, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. His invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So the sovereignty of God should be obvious to all. It is obvious to all. It's clearer than crystal. Creation is a screaming billboard announcing God's power and presence. There is no person on earth who can claim ignorance, no human being who can plead not guilty on the basis of not knowing. Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by, by hands. So this is Paul, Paul speaking in Athens, and he's upset. He's troubled over the idolatry that he's seen in the city. Statues and altars and shrines and, and just all these signs of paganism are everywhere, and they surround him. So what he does is he proceeds to offer a corrective. He says that your statues are just statues and nothing more. Man made these gods... But let me tell you about a God who made man. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. The title Paul uses here, Lord of heaven and earth, it's similar in its meaning to the word used in our passage that we read earlier. It speaks of a supreme authority, an ultimate rule, a sovereign over everything. So let's go back to our passage in, in Acts chapter 4. Uh, and the last two verses say this, While you stretch out your hand for healing, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of the Lord boldly. So here we see, following the prayer of the believers, that God flexes his muscle and demonstrates his power. Showing his sovereignty over nature, God causes the place where they were gathered to quake in response to the prayer. He is the God who tells the mighty ocean 
that it may go this far and no further, who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, who splits seas and rivers so that his people can pass through on dry ground, who makes the blazing sun stand still in the sky while his people fight in a battle, who causes fire to rain down upon his enemies as an act of judgment for wickedness, who causes the rainbow to appear after the flooding of the globe, who gathers the dust from the earth and breathes life into it. This is our sovereign Lord. Going back to Acts in chapter 17, we see uh, that he neither is served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. So God is our sovereign Lord. He needs nothing from us. The exact opposite, in fact, is true, that we need God to live and to move and to have our being. Our very being is dependent completely on God. The reason we can take our next breath is because, is because God supplies oxygen for our lungs to take in. And those lungs only do what lungs do because God designed them that way and keeps them operating the same way he keeps the world spinning, the same way he keeps those stars twinkling, the same way he keeps the fire burning, the fire of the sun burning, the same way he keeps those electrons in orbit around the nucleus of the atom. He is sovereign over all of creation, even to the tiniest detail. So the next section of this, we will note that God is sovereign over the nations. Back to the prayer of the believers, it says, you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So this prayer quotes Psalm chapter 2, and we note the futility of opposing a sovereign God. He scoffs at, he laughs at, he ridicules, he holds in derision man's lame attempt to team up against him. Don't they know that no force, however large, however powerful, however determined, can usurp the Lord of heaven and earth? So we have this showdown. It's God versus the kings of the earth. The question is, whose side are you on? I know what side I want to be on, right? God is sovereign over the nations. As Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, at, during his time admits in Daniel chapter 4, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does what he wants with the army of heaven and, and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say, What have you done? So in, in context, we have Nebuchadnezzar, and at this point he's quite impressed with himself. He, held, he beheld his vast riches and his considerable power and he began to pat himself on the back for his great accomplishments he said is this not babylon the great that i have built to be a royal residence by my vast power for my majestic glory immediately after he spoke those words he went insane god struck him with insanity and he began to behave like a wild animal in the wilderness he failed to give glory to God and failed to acknowledge his sovereignty. Instead, he gave glory to himself 
and he thought himself to be sovereign. And why not? He was on top of the world at this point. He was the envy of everyone. Christians, let us not fall into the same trap Nebuchadnezzar did. As we serve, as we work, as we accomplish things in this life, let us not fail to give glory to God. And the moment we think ourselves to be something, we could be brought to nothing very easily. So we need to learn that lesson. Uh, going back to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it was seven long years that he inhabited the wilderness, thinking himself to be some sort of beast, far from the sovereign that he thought he was to begin with. The pronouncement from God was this, you will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on the grass like cattle for the seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. So Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to acknowledge that God is ruler over human kingdoms, including especially his own kingdom. And once he recovered his sanity, Nebuchadnezzar did just that. Men and nations amount to nothing, he says, compared to the sovereign Lord. So let's go back to uh, Paul in Acts chapter 17, and it says this, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and has determined their appointed times, the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they may seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God in his sovereignty has arranged the dwellings and the boundaries of every nation that ever existed on the planet. Truly, as this children's song goes, he's got the whole world in his hands. As the text indicates, and there's a reason there's a plan, there's a purpose for him drawing up the map that the way he did. He did it so that men and women might find, that might find him. The Lord of all the earth, he dwells in the heavens and is seated on the throne as sovereign, yet his purpose to make himself available to men of every nation. So that's our sovereign God who is sovereign over nations. He is also sovereign over over events that occur in time. Going back to Acts chapter 4, it says this, For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will predestined to take place. So this was the worst crime in history, the murder of the innocent, sinless Son of God. Amazingly, Amazingly, this crime, this travesty of justice, was all pre-planned by God. He predestined the crucifixion of Jesus. It wasn't like God was reacting to the way things were playing out after he sent Jesus, right? It wasn't that God sent his son into the world and just kind of wasn't sure how it would all pan out. This is a heretical view known as open theism, which insists that God has no control over events to the point that he doesn't even know the future and that at best he makes good guesses about the things that will happen. We must reject such a, no a notion because it's contrary to what we learn about God from the scriptures, including these verses exactly. God is sovereign over events. So consider all that went into this plan of God's. He hints at it in the Garden of Eden after the fall of man. 
The offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, but only after his own heel was bruised. He sent prophets to tell of a Messiah that would be a suffering servant. Then, in the fullness of time, Jesus is born, fulfills all those prophecies, and goes to the cross to die for our sins. In order for this to happen, the bad guys mentioned here had to do, had to assemble to do what God had intended them to do, to do, which was to kill Jesus. This wasn't just the way things got, things worked out, and God just kind of made it all work out for Him. This was the plan all along. Isaiah reminds us in chapter 46, remember what happened long ago. For I am God, there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. So there is no one like our God. He decrees from eternity past exactly what is to take place in time to the very last and smallest detail. All the events all events are subject to his sovereignty. And it's not like God makes the plans and just like I do, I make plans and maybe it'll work out. Maybe not. He doesn't wonder if it'll all happen the way that he expects. No, his decree is certain and he is active in bringing everything to pass according to his will and purposes. One of the difficulties that we as finite creatures have is that we see bad stuff happen all the time in this world, right? All the time. We could multiply examples of bad things and we could kind of, I could stand up here and list them. It'd be, it'd be a long service, right? But suffice it to say, it is hard to reconcile a good God who, sovereign, who sovereignly decrees whatsoever should come to pass with the fact that some truly awful things come to pass. So what do we do with that? We can turn to Joseph in Genesis and, and ask him, what did he do with that? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 says this, speaking to his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. So we know the story. Joseph is the favorite son of his father, Jacob, and he is hated by his jealous brothers. The, the brothers plot against him. First, they, they thought maybe to kill him, but then they change their minds and they sell him into slavery. So we fast forward and we find Joseph ends up in an Egyptian prison. Rotting away in that prison, he must have had to wrestle with those same difficulties, right? If God is good, why did he let these bad things happen to me? It was many years later that Joseph understands God pur God's purpose behind his hardships. And it wasn't until he was on the other side of things that he could say, God planned it for good. The good intentions of God are contrasted with the evil intentions of his brothers. Their hatred was the, dividing, was the driving force for the cruelty they showed their brother. Yet even this hatred and those evil intentions were worked into this good plan of God's the selling of Joseph to Potiphar, the lie Potiphar's wife told that landed Joseph in jail, the dreams of the baker and the butler, the dream Pharaoh had, all of that, all of these events planned out by God to take place to accomplish his will. Joseph could see the bad things were used by God 
for good. Sometimes we get the privilege of seeing what Joseph saw in our own hardships. We, after it's over, we see the long-range plan of God and how he worked things out for good. But at the same time, sometimes we don't get that bird's-eye view. But in the meantime, we just have to trust God and believe he is good and know that he is sovereign. So one more thought before we leave Joseph. So the famine, the famine that came upon the land that, that Pharaoh dreamed about, that caused Joseph to have to be taken over to Egypt, God planned for that to happen too, right? He planned for that famine to get Joseph and his family to Egypt for years later for Moses to lead them out of Egypt in a miraculous way to show the power of God. And we can go on and on and on to how we see God's planning in every part of redemptive history. So here's a reminder from Isaiah chapter 45. It says, I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Remember that God is sovereign over events in time. Perhaps we forget this and tend to believe that we are in charge of what happens. We make plans and set up goals, but nothing we decree is guaranteed to come to pass. James reminds us of this in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city, spend a year there, and do business, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. You are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And in Luke, Jesus tells a parable about a rich fool who thought he had it all figured out, right? Luke chapter 12, Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Sounds good. Sounds like retirement, right? But God said, in him, but God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? We may have our plans, but ultimately it's God who determines what ends up happening. And finally, we see in our passage that God is sovereign over the hearts of man. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will have predestined to take place. Now consider their threats and grant your servants Grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. So in this last section, we consider the ways in which God is sovereign, even over the human heart. The events that lead up to the crucifixion of Jesus that we talked about a little while ago, they were predestined by God, yet the events themselves were not isolated from the thoughts and the intentions of the human hearts that were involved. Herod, Pilate, and everybody else had wills, and motivations and thoughts and intentions that were all subject to God's sovereignty. God used the hearts of these men to bring about what he had predestined, predestined to occur. Spurgeon comments on these verses. He says, When wicked men think God's decrees will be forever put away by the destruction of his son, they place themselves then actually doing what God had predestined to take place. The wildest discord makes harmony 
in the ear of God. A person may be in rebellion against the Most High, but he is still abjectly the slave of God's predestination. Let the people sin with free will, even to the most extreme length of folly. Yet even then God has a bit in their mouths and a bridle on their jaws and knows how to rule and govern them according to his own good pleasure. The, the ferocity of kinds and priests do, does but fulfill the counsel of God. So we read in Proverbs chapter 21 that a king's heart is, is like a channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. And then we can turn uh, to another example, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he had an encounter with the sovereign Lord. In Exodus, we read, the Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. So in the face of mighty, the mighty power demonstrated by God, Pharaoh is stubborn, prideful, arrogant. He's defiant. He won't let the people go. And this was the result of the hardening of his heart by God. So we see that God is sovereign over even the hearts of men. Back to our passage, it says... When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they, fill, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. We see the believers praying for boldness, for courage, for the fortitude to stand. And this petition of theirs is granted, as the text indicates, that they began to speak the word of the Lord boldly. Essentially, the believers are asking God for strength in the inner man. They they are asking God to implant boldness into the very core of their being. They recognize God's sovereign reach extended even to their hearts. They tell God, touch my heart, God. Give me boldness. Give me a desire to stand for you. Give me courage to, to face imprisonment and even death. So as we finish up here, we understand that God is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over the nations over events in time, even over the human heart. And it frees us from worries and fears. If it, God's in control, he's in control totally and completely. Nothing comes as a surprise to him. No matter what happens, he still sits on his throne. And this should be a comfort to us. As we head into the uncertainty of a new year, this should be a relief to us as we look back and wonder at the previous year or a couple of years, what in the world is going on? How did we get here? We have many questions and concerns, but God doesn't. For him, everything is going exactly according to plan. So I'll conclude with another quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. So God is sovereign. Let's pray to our sovereign Lord. Father God, we are thankful, Lord, to you for everything. We thank you that you have taught us in your word that you are completely sovereign, that you are in control of everything that takes place, Lord. 
down to the smallest detail, Lord. And as we head into a new year, Lord, and, and we see things in the news and we're not sure and we're wondering how things are going to pan out, Lord, you're not wondering at all. You have it planned out from the very beginning. So, Lord, may we take that and let it comfort us. Let it ease our fears and worries and anxieties and concerns, knowing, Lord, that you will make things happen according to your plans and your purposes, and you are a good God, Father, and that we trust you even when things look bad from our angle. From yours, Lord, everything is going well. Everything is going exactly according to your plans, Father God. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text that we read this morning that we can read it and, and just know more about you, Lord. May we continue to hunger and thirst for the word of God to teach us, Lord, during uncertain times. We have the certainty of your word, Father. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for this new year heading forward. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.